Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast, where we discuss all things GRC. Essentially, you've got to assess the seriousness of the conflict. So if, if it is a conflict which is so serious, it goes to the obligations of the licensee in their arrangements to, to between themselves and their clients, then that is something that must be avoided. Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast. My name is Kwame Slusher. I'm the editor of the GRC Professional Magazine and the GRC Professional Online. And today we have Carol and Naomi with us again. Carol, of course, is our strategic and engagement consultant and Naomi is our managing director. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Hello. Thank you very so much. We are here to discuss part B of the Conflicts of Interest podcast. So I think without further ado, throw it back to you guys. Yes, last time we only got as far as even talking about how to identify them because this is a complex issue and has obviously arisen because it can be subjective. The customer may have a completely different version of um, view on this than the organisation will or the entity will. Um, so I, today we want to talk about what's an adequate way to manage a conflict of interest given that uh, we don't live in a perfect world and we can't 100% eliminate them. Some things are just inherently conflicted. You like your workmate, you like your work colleague, um, you know, and this is why sometimes even breach reporting doesn't work because there's a conflict of interest there. You like the person next to you who's committing fraud. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm not the person she's talking about. <laughs> so, Carol, what... What does a regulator mean when they when they ask it to be adequately managed? Look, the first thing I mean we've d- discussed previously about identifying what your conflicts are or potential conflicts are. Out of that process, and in conjunction again with the business, it's important to draft a policy which covers conflicts handling, and and it enables the business to understand where the line in the sand is because. That's incredibly important. So when that policy is done, it, it and if you have an existing policy, it's really important that you review it on an annual basis at least to ensure that you are keeping up to date with the then appropriate laws and any relevant media or you know royal commissions as an example, so that your policy actually reflects the standards that are applicable in 2019. So you start from that point of has, has the, is the policy properly drafted? Does it cover all of your business? And does it cover the sorts of nuances that are in there? So for instance, you may set up a new entity. Does, does in fact the policy actually cover all of the entities within your group? Because some of them actually are, are um, the head entity specific and don't necessarily look at how they cover other group structures. So that's the first thing. When you when you have that, um, so what are the structural arrangements that you have in place to manage those conflicts of interest? Have you a process where there is a committee that considers conflicts of interest? Is this something which is regularly updated by, by the management team, by your board of directors? How is it that conflicts of interest issues are brought to the attention of management? Is it just a reporting factor or is it things that you need to do on a a proactive basis? So how do you, those arrangements, make certain that your clients aren't treated, are are, sorry, are not treated unfairly? So how do you test the effectiveness of those arrangements um, in 
the day-to-day operations of your business. Firstly, you want to look at the training of your own staff. So are they people who understand what a conflict of interest is? is? And then you look at at how those conflicts are managed in the day-to-day operations of the business. So more sophisticated players, as an example, may have arrangements where they can listen in on telephone calls between um, staff and, and a client, or sometimes it's desk reviews. There are a variety of ways in which you can test the effectiveness. It can be as simple as after a sale is, is completed that there is a phone back to a particular client to talk with them about how the conflicts of interest that are inherent in the sale have actually been managed. So what would you do? Let's let's use that example because that's an interesting one because a lot of the management now sounds like it's going to be around that monitoring space. You've acknowledged that a conflict exists. There's nothing you can do to remove it. It just is the way it is. Um, so now you're going to be monitoring to make sure that it didn't affect the advice given or the decision made by the client. What are the kind of questions you're going to ask the client given that they probably don't understand what a conflict of interest is? Well, part of it is about the disclosure regime. So, for instance, if if the advisor is receiving a commission in relation to the sale, you want to make certain the client actually understands that there is a commission, what the value of that commission is and what impact their investment returns may be Um, impacted by the particular commission structure. So you want people to truly understand that if they are buying, you know, say a $10,000 investment in in a master fund, that they understand that the individual advisor is being remunerated by and by how, by whom. So is it remuneration from the investment or is it remuneration by the responsible entity? Okay, so let's say let's say you've asked that question or you're asking that question. Are there other are there other indicators that are also potential? Should the client should you have a list of criteria where the client should have expected advice to um, include a range of options, a particular range of options? Um, you know, do you ask questions about their experience of whether they were pushed in a particular direction? Are there any other? ways of doing that because only from the perspective of the end user um, there's being informed of something and then feeling as though you have no control over that and that you can't assess whether that conflicted the advice you were given. Yeah. Does that make and sense? Look it's about the communication process. Communication with clients is never perfect um, because one has to assume that the client on the other side has the same degree of education and experience as you have as the person who was selling it. So that if you are dealing, say for instance, with a person who is from a, a limited English background and education, then you, then your obligations to manage those conflicts are, can be different from somebody who has gone to university and understands investment from a sophisticated level. And in, But in every case, if it's an advisor doing a sale, the person, the client needs to understand how the advisor is being remunerated and it must be clear and it must be without question that the client will understand what's happening. Okay. What are other ways of managing uh, some other kind of complex conflicts um, that you can't eliminate them? Or what's your trigger point for eliminating them? Is that determined by every business? 
Look, essentially you've got to assess the seriousness of the conflict. So if, if it is a conflict which is so serious it goes to the obligations of the licensee in their arrangements to, to between themselves and their clients, then that is something that must be avoided. And, and so you, you need to be very careful to identify when you're doing the identification of conflicts what the, what the individual seriousness of each particular one is. So it can be getting a kickback on a conference. Is that something which is serious? Potentially it is. Um, but you then measure it against, as I've said, examples of, you know, um, giving, receiving... I'll just think of the right word, sorry. Bonus or...? Yeah, uh, no, 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 it's receiving... Um, Gift. Um, it's when somebody wants to go on your master fund receiving a preference, preferential, preferential payment. Yeah. So sorry. Yeah, so true. it can be, for instance, when you're operating a master fund about receiving a payment by a pot potential investment manager to go onto the list. If there is no control over the over the list then query whether as a responsible entity you're actually doing your job and does the payment itself then mean that that's a conflict that should have been avoided. Okay. All right. So in the, then the sense of then the regulator knocks on the door and asks what are your adequate measures, what should you have in place to demonstrate you've gone through this process and it's current, it's fit for purpose, and it, um, and it looks after the complexity of your business. This is about getting the right policies in place. So first off, you need to have a conflicts of interest policy. Secondly, you want to have trading policies. So in what circumstances can, can individual staff and particularly investment managers undertake trading in various products? So as an, inst as an example, do you allow your fund managers to actually invest personally in... Um, investments that are held within the fund. So sometimes people do that because they have trading windows, there has to be disclosure to compliance and, and so forth, but other people basically say it's too hard. You can't actually put your own um, interests side by side with those of a fund. It is something which is an individual basis, but whatever the process, you do have to have extremely robust processes in relation to, to trading. Um, the next one is, <coughs> sorry, um, you need to sort of think about what are the circumstances where you want to avoid um, conflicts of interest as opposed to dealing with them through disclosure or internal controls. So how are those decisions made or recorded? So anything which relates to avoidance, let's Sorry. Anything relates to conflicts of interest needs to be recorded so that a regulator can see how, how you have done that and they're able to look at those policies. Remuneration and benefit practices are a key area also nowadays for, for regulators to look at. They want to make certain that a particular investment manager isn't being um, offering its staff a bonus for, for trading in particular stocks or engaging in particular practices. So how how people are remunerated is relevant 
and the benefits that they can receive, i.e. gifts and entertainment, which we've already discussed in another podcast, are also relevant. Okay. What about your monitoring on this one? Um, is that something you can also do through the monitoring of sales? If you see something that um, seems to be being sold a lot of a particular product, um, yeah, are there other ways to monitor this other than waiting for someone to report something that they think looks dodgy? Look, this is proactive compliance and, and you know, for some compliance people who have a very small staff, it is a very difficult thing and I sympathise with you. But at the end of the day, it's really important that you understand what your advisors are doing on a daily basis and to whom they are offering product on the circumstances in which they're doing it. So it's it's never going to be something which anyone's going to say, oh gee, I've got enough resources to be able to do this. It's about finding out, as you've indicated, who are the highest salesperson. Sometimes they're the best ones to start with new staff so you want to make certain that they are actually using you know following your guidelines and policies and then getting people in for training on things on a regular basis and then reviewing their their sales practices after the training is also a very useful way of looking at it and sometimes people actually have in place written tests for want of a better word for these key policies so conflicts of interest, trading, and gifts and, and entertainment. Okay. What about from the, the customer or client um, complaints perspective as well? Um, complaints, of course, are the uh, an opportunity for a, a firm rather than a, a problem because you can then look at it and say, have we actually done the right thing by these particular people? So as an example, there's a lot of people who are looking at the sales process to elder people and the extent to which that that is potentially elder abuse in in relation to the sales processes. So you need to be very careful to make certain that that, um, complaints from individuals are dealt with seriously, that they're not just hived off to some junior clerk who doesn't understand what the product is all about that there is an active communication process with with the um, customer and that as a result of that, there is actually a process of actually going back and looking at what were the practices that were undertaken. There's been a lot of um, press recently as an example about medical negligence in the country, um, in country hospitals. And part of the process has been that the complaint arose, so that somebody died or or was, was left in a, in a fairly tragic situation. But the process in terms of review or assessment of the complaint was utterly inadequate. Mm. So you need to actually make the hard decision. So if it's somebody who is mis-selling your product, at the end of the day, sometimes these people have to be let go mm. because the risk from you to your, the risk of their activities to your license is too great. All right. Well, it's a really complex and ongoing moving feast when we look at what the regulators are proposing in terms of the remuneration models and what can actually be practically implemented and still sell products. So thank you, Carol, for that. Yeah, thank you very much, Naomi and Carol. Um, And I think not too far away from when this podcast will be published, I think the conference is just around the corner, so maybe we can just slip a quick bit in there. Um, Naomi, do you want to talk a bit about the conference? Oh, look, very, very quickly... 
I know trust is a really big theme, but what's emerging and evolving as we curate the speakers and, and help them prepare for the conference is this whole piece around conduct and the complexity of the compliance role and how strategic compliance actually is becoming. Um, it's really important that not just that you meet your obligations, but that sometimes you don't want that kind of behaviour in your organisation because it actually implicates other crimes against your organisation. So um, it's a really interesting place for compliance to be at the moment and we'd really like our members to join us for that one um, and get involved in those discussions. Yeah, so those dates are the 17th and the 18th at the Crown in Melbourne. So hope to see you guys there. Of October. October. Not and, September. And yeah. can I just say that the the very important thing is that we view compliance as a profession and that the people who are our members, we believe, are at the forefront and vanguard of trying to embed within their organisation good practices. Haynes said it was telling that the practice of giving financial advice is not yet a profession. So you are, in fact, administering um, policies and procedures over people sometimes who just don't have the same standards as you have, regardless of um, FASIA or FOFA. So it's very important that you remain on guard, as, as Naomi said, to ensure that your business keeps at the forefront of good practice. All right, well, thank you very much, guys. This podcast was a production of the Governance Risk and Compliance Institute and the music was produced by Rob Neary.